Welcome to the 10th episode of The Normal World, a podcast where former elite athletes share their stories. Not so much about their sport careers, but about how they found their way back into normal life. Today's guest is Sabrina, and together we'll dive into the world of Singaree swimming from a Canadian perspective. We'll talk about why she started Singaree swimming in the first place, what effect the culture had on her when she quit her elite career, and how she had overcome the challenges she faced after she quit. I'm Anna Leitbakker, and welcome to the normal world of Sabrina Magnum. Hi, Sabrina. How are you? Hi, I'm so good. How are you? Thank you. I'm fine. Yes, I'm so happy that you want to join my podcast. It's my pleasure. I'm so excited to talk about this topic with you. Yes, because we're going to talk about synchronized swimming, right? Mm -hmm. Let me ask you, how did you got into the sport? Yes, yeah, so my sister, who is nine years older than me, was a synchronized swimmer when she was young as well. And I grew up in a neighborhood where everyone was either a swimmer, a diver, a water polo player or a synchronized swimmer. And so I kind of dabbled in all the sports and my sister really wanted me to get into synchronized swimming just like she did. And through the push of a few people, I was kind of convinced um, to give it a try. I started as kind of recreational um, for fun, doing it with some friends. And then I got into doing it a little bit more intensely And then it progressed into doing it at the elite level. So what did you like most about the sports? Like what specifically drawn you into the sport? Yeah, so synchronized swimming, which is now called artistic swimming, is a very artistic and creative sport. You, A lot of people compare it to dancing in the water. It's a little bit harder than that, but <laughs> um, <laughs> it allowed me to be very creative when it comes to making up routines. Um, What I really, really loved about it is I love being around people and I loved having a team where everyone is working towards the same shared goal, having that sense of community and camaraderie and having that family, like really being so close with someone. Having a teammate is very different from just having a friend. So when you started in recreational um, synchronized swimming, how many hours were you training back then? I was only training about, I would say, eight to eight to 12 hours a week. During recreational? Yes. That's quite a lot, actually, isn't it? Uh, yes, but for synchronized swimming, it's not. When, um, when you get to higher levels, I got to training... 20 to 25 hours a week. So it's a sport that requires a lot of um, repetition. It requires doing a lot of different kind of exercise. So you're doing flexibility, you're doing endurance, you're doing strength training, you're practicing your routine. So a lot of aspects to it require a lot of hours of training for it. Yeah, I think it's the same in, in uh, gymnastics, actually. We need a lot of repetition hours as well. So maybe I think the sports relate a bit on there. Mm -hmm. So you already mentioned at some point it became more seriously. Can you maybe elaborate on that, how that progressed? 
Yeah, so it got to a point where I started getting a little bit better at the sport. I wanted to move up from the recreational, which at that time in Canada, you're either doing it, you're competing against your province, which is, um, for me, it was Quebec, which is at the provincial level, at the recreational level, or you move up to elite and you're competing against the entire country. So you're competing against different provinces. Um, you're traveling all around Canada. And I wanted to move up. I have always been really driven, hardworking, and I wanted to take it up to a new level. So in order to do that, I moved different clubs because the club I was at didn't offer that higher level. I moved different clubs. And that is where you really go from eight to 10 hours to 18 to 20 hours a week. And then it really becomes a lot more serious. How did you notice that it became a lot more serious? Well, just the entire um, environment changes. The club, first of all, is different. You're training at a different pool. You're training with a different type of coach. You know, it's you're no longer just doing it recreationally. You're training for results. You're not just kind of doing it for fun. Um, it's a lot more intense. The practices are more intense. You're, you're training with girls who are on national teams. And so the entire, the entire environment. And of, of course, my first year wasn't as intense as, you know, five years in. It, it gets harder and harder as, as time goes on, as you get better. Yeah, so at what age did you became elite? Um, so I believe I was 10 when I did that. So I did two years from eight to 10 at the provincial development level. And then at the age of 10 is when I was I switched to elite. You mentioned it was very results driven. Um, what was the goal when you became elite? What did you wanted to achieve? So I, I definitely had some teammates who had these big goals, which was to go to the Olympics. Um, I actually have a teammate at the time who is now in Tokyo at the Olympics right oh, now. Really? Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, definitely. She's, um, she's the top of the team. She was always like a really, really incredibly hard worker and everyone knew she was going to go to the Olympics. I didn't necessarily have that goal. I just wanted to be the best swimmer that I could be. I wanted to perform the best that I could. I wanted to show up and and give it my all. And that was really my ultimate goal. I never had this kind of big goal of making this, this Olympic team. Do you feel like you were practicing the sport as an elite athlete back then? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It was... It was my identity. It was all I did when you're training 20 hours a week, then you don't really have much time for anything else. You don't really have much time for a social life. You go to school, you go to the pool, you get home, you eat to nourish yourself after practice, you do some homework, you go to bed and you repeat that day in and day out. That must have been really, really intense. So how did you combine that with high school? It was tough. I had to um, leave school early. So a lot of the girls I swam with were in a program called Sparitude. So they went to a school that allowed them to be done school at noon. So they only did half days and then they would spend the entire afternoon at the pool training. 
I didn't particularly want to do that. I wanted to go to a more normal school, which um, meant that I was done at 4 p.m. instead of noon. And that made it really tight because I needed to get to the pool. So I had a special note from my teacher that said I needed to leave early, which was pretty isolating because I would always pack up my stuff as everyone was still working in class and just leave early to go to the pool. So how did it work with high school? It was tough. Um, I often had to say no to hanging out with friends because I had practice. I missed every single school trip for the five years that I was in high school because I was either practicing or at a competition. So it was definitely, it made you kind of in this bubble where just you and your team understands it, but people who aren't in an elite sport, it's kind of hard to understand that you can't always be doing things after after school or on the weekends. That must have been very hard, particularly at an age that you are very like, sensitive to maybe opinions from others when you're in high school. So how did that make you feel? Um, Very isolated, Um, especially when this was, I think a lot of elite athletes can understand this, the the comments of, well, can't you just miss practice? And (laughs) (laughs) I got that comment all the time. And especially when you're in a team sport, there's no such thing as just missing practice because people want to hang out. So I think that especially because I most of my friends in my high school, they didn't do a high level sport like that. They didn't really understand that you can't just miss practice. And it it really is just part of who you are. I had some friends who were in water polo or swimming um, at the high level as well. They just weren't my high school friends. They went to different high schools. So when it came to actually school wise, um, it did make me feel pretty isolated. Yeah, that must have been tough. Then at some point you graduate high school, I think. Mm -hmm. Then what happened? (laughs) So I actually decided that my last year of high school was going to be my last year of synchronized swimming as well. Exactly for that reason. I'm a very social person. I like having friends. I like hanging out with my friends. And I was going into a different kind of schooling, which in Quebec is called CEGEP, which is the kind of a transition between high school and university. It's something that only Quebec has. And it's meant to be fun. It's kind of like a college where that's where you start Kind of, you're you're 17. You're you start going out. You start having different experiences, and I didn't want to be training 20 hours a week while doing that. I wanted to have a social life. I was also starting to feel the effects of synchronized swimming on my body. Um, I have a lot of injuries from the sport. I have. Um, scoliosis, which means that my spine isn't straight. It was hurting my back a lot. I was getting hip injuries and knee injuries. And it was just, it was a time for me, everything came together. And I said, you know what, it's it's time for me to be done with the sport. I was no longer enjoying it. Like when I first started, um, because like I said, it did become just very results oriented. It wasn't so much about the fun. It was just you show up, you practice, you train a lot you compete. And I didn't have that passion and love for it anymore. 
So it wasn't worth it to sacrifice my social life for it anymore. So yes, so I did, I quit the sport when high school ended and the transition away from the sport, even though I knew that it was the right time for me to do it, was a lot harder than I expected it to be. I can completely relate with the transition being very, very hard. So a little bit backtracking to you making the decision to quit with synchronized swimming, was that an overnight decision? Can you like maybe talk us through how that decision, you already talked a bit about it, but maybe a bit more specific about like how that like evolved? Yeah, it definitely was not an overnight decision. Um, it was as I was training during my last year, I was there was a lot of back and forth, right? Like maybe I'll do another year, especially because in the age group that I was in, I still had one more year in that age group. And I kept flip-flopping do okay do I do one more and a lot all of my teammates were in the same position they all had another year and most of them were going back for that last year and so that made it even harder you know them telling me just come back for one more year but like I said for me I didn't really see the point of it because what happens after that other year. I didn't have these big goals of continuing beyond that. I didn't have these big goals of making a national team or whatever it was. So I had to prioritize my own sanity and my own social life and my own mental health and just decide, yes, it's probably any kind of change is hard, especially when it's part of your identity. Whether I was quitting that year or the year after, it was going to be equally as hard to quit the sport. So I decided to do it when it felt right. And it made sense. I was ending high school. I was kind of putting that chapter of my life behind me. I don't know how SAGEP works because we don't have it here in the Netherlands, mm -hmm. I think. So was it also a possibility to combine both like synchronized swimming maybe for a team at SAGEP? I don't know maybe like how they have it in the US, like college teams. Was that a possibility? So I did do very, very um, recreational synchro when I got to SEJEP. It was just a fun team that me and my friends put together. And we, we trained once a week on Friday nights. And then we would kind of go out all together. It wasn't very serious. So no, it's not really like you continue beyond that in SEJEP. Um, but I did want to still be in contact with the sport. I still wanted to have it in my life because like I said, it was part of who I was. So I kept coaching for those two years in SEJEP. After quitting, I, I coached uh, young girls who were for them at the development level. So they were doing it. They were getting into the sport for the first time or they were 11 or 12. And I really did enjoy teaching what I had known for so long to other girls. I can imagine that that's very, like I, I've done a year of coaching myself and it, it's so nice to see those like little kids so being so enthusiastic about the sport. But I can imagine it's also hard because on one end you want to like step away from the sport as an athlete and on the other hand you're being a coach. So you're still involved in the sport. Mm -hmm. How was that for you? Hard. It was very hard because I 
would coach at the same time as my teammates, my ex-teammates were training. And that was the team that I would have been on had I kept doing it. And one thing I had a really hard time with when I quit the sport is not having that sense of family anymore, not having those teammates where anyone who's really gone close with the team knows that the bond you make with those girls or those guys, it's it's something entirely different from a friend. And so to see them continue the sport together and have their, their sense of family and of team and me being out of it. And yes, I was still in touch with the sport. I was still coaching, but I wasn't actually in that sense of community. That was that was really difficult for me. For anyone that, that hasn't practiced any sport at an elite level, um, can you maybe explain to them how friends and family are, are very different like to your teammates? And maybe some people could think like, yeah, but you also have your friends and families. Maybe they can replace the role uh, like you had with your team. Um, can you maybe explain to you how that was for you? It's... It really just isn't the same because especially synchronized swimming is a very difficult sport. You've gone through it all together. You've gone through the incredibly hard practices. You've gone through the the laughs and you've seen each other at your best moments and your worst moments. And you've worked together towards a common goal. And it really is like that shared sense of purpose And when you just have those friends, yes, you can share like those deeper sides to you, but it's not like you're working towards this one thing together. Like when you have those teammates who, like I say, you hold each other up during hard practices and you, you push each other and you support each other. And it's having those shared experiences that create a bond that is very, very special in a teammate. And um, you mentioned you struggled a lot when you quit uh, elite synchronized swimming. So you talked about not having a team around you and missing that sense of community. Um, Were there other things that you were struggling with? Yeah, so anyone who doesn't know synchronized swimming, it's a very um, body image focused sport where you are judged on your appearance. So how tall you are, how tan you are, how skinny you are. And if you look at the Olympic level athletes, they all look the same. They're tall, they're skinny, they kind of look like dancers, um, super, super skinny legs. And you kind of learn when you're in synchronized swimming that you're going to be more worthy, you're going to be more um, likely to make certain teams if you look a certain way. And it's ingrained in you. And I actually didn't really notice how ingrained it was in me until years after when you kind of step out of the bubble and you look into it from an outside point of view and you're like, wow, that was really I was really screwed up. (laughs) So it's a sport that has a lot of emphasis on what you're eating, how much you're working out. You know, a lot of comments are made about, okay, well, make sure you had a bad practice. Make sure that you don't eat cookies for the rest of the week. Like really, really intense stuff like that. So when I got out of the sport and I was no longer training 20, 25 hours a week, 
of course my body changed. And I also didn't know how to navigate like the food world where I had to actually worry about what I was putting into my body. Because when you're an, when you're an athlete, you're just eating to, to have the energy to get through your practices. And when you are no longer doing that, then you have to actually start watching what you're eating. And I kind of took it to an extreme because I was never taught the the right way to live a healthy lifestyle that wasn't so extreme when you're training like crazy hours a week. So I I saw my body changing and my first instinct was, okay, well, I just have to diet. I have to do what everyone else does and I have to start eating only the salads and stop eating bread and stop eating fat and and just eat vegetables and fruit. And um, I have to work out like two hours a day so that I can maintain this body that I used to have because I was so, so terrified of gaining weight because the sport told me that you gain weight, there's something wrong with you. So I definitely struggled with disordered eating behaviors and constantly thinking about white weight and constantly thinking about food for many years after quitting the sport. So um, to people that have uh, listened to my episode, I've struggled with an eating disorder after I quit gymnastics myself. And for me, it took me took me a long time before I actually noticed that something was wrong with me and food. How was that for you? Same thing. Same thing. When I was in it, I didn't think there was anything wrong with what I was doing. I thought it was just normal. Like I thought I was taking care of my health. I... I didn't think that there was something off about my behaviors. I would say that it was probably, I, I mean, I'm still, I'm still shocked. Like it's still, there's some things where there's moments where I look back on my behaviors and it, it pops up to my mind for the first time. Like, oh my God, I can't believe I used to do this. I can't believe I used to count every single calorie I would eat. <laughs> um, so I would say that it took me, I mean, I probably struggled with that for about four or five years. And then it probably took me a, a solid year or two years after that to really come to terms with, oh, that was that was not okay. And not only was it was it not okay, but more people struggle with this in the world than we realize. And more people are going through it right now and and think that that's a normal way to live, to constantly be obsessed with food. We are so conditioned to um, think that food has to be feared because of diet culture, that it's normalized. And that was my problem. It was very normalized for me. Yeah. Well, especially when you come out of, can I call it a toxic culture, like within the sport, I can imagine that it feels very normal to you and you want to maintain that lifestyle even after you quit. At least that's what it was for me. And I can recognize that in your story as well. After Sejep, you went to college or university? University, yes. 
how did that go? Did you like started to get like a sense of college life or um, and how did how did it go with the struggles you faced back then? Yeah, so my disordered eating behaviors took two extremes. So during SAGEP, it was a lot of the restriction and then binging. So I would eat super, super well Monday through Friday. And then because I was so restricted and I was eating boring foods that I didn't particularly like and I was hungry all of the time, then it's your biological response to ask for more. And that would happen on the weekend. So I would go out and I would drink a lot to make up for a kind of a really, really hard week of restricting I would, if I would drink, then I'd be like, okay, all bets are off. Then I can eat the pizza and the chocolate and all the foods that I've been craving all week. And then I would work out like two hours a day and I would just run to burn all the calories that I had eaten and that I felt terrible about. So that was Seisha. Then when university hit, I, I kept doing that for one or two years. And then it kind of took a turn where I started becoming really, really obsessed with eating clean. And it's now called orthorexia, which is like this really big obsession with being healthy. So I would get anxious if I didn't get my 10,000 steps in. And I would only eat organic foods. And I would count every single calorie. And I would get nervous if I went over by even a hundred calories a day. And I remember my days were determined by how quote unquote good I was in my eating choices. So I would go to bed and I would think, okay, what did I eat today? Okay, I ate this breakfast. That was a good choice. And I ate a salad for lunch. Okay, I did well there. And if I was proud of what I had done, then it was kind of like a mental check mark. Okay, good job. You can be proud of yourself today. And Because of that, I really started isolating myself because I didn't want to go to restaurants with my friends because I didn't know how many calories were going to be in my food. And I didn't know, I didn't like the sense of someone else making my food. I was constantly hungry, of course, because I wasn't eating enough and I was constantly tired and low energy. So I wouldn't want to go out at night because I just wanted to go to bed because I was so exhausted. So I would say that That was really hard. Uh, it happened for, it was that extreme for about a year. And it was that year that it started becoming kind of an awareness of, oh, there's something wrong. Like what I thought I was doing for my health is actually really not healthy mentally. I was, yeah, I was losing weight, but I wasn't doing it in a healthy way. And I was very extremely unhappy, but I didn't know how to get out of that because I was still so afraid of gaining weight. At what point, like you mentioned, it became aware to you that something was wrong with your relation with food. What, what specifically made you notice that? Do you remember like a specific thing maybe? Just being miserable, being very, very isolated and and starting to see my friendships fade because I was no longer myself. I was always the the loud girl who liked going to parties, who liked socializing. I was the life of the party 
And I was just no longer that. I was not myself. Everything was about food and working out. And it'd be those nights where I would stay home and I'd, I'd just think like, what am I doing here? I'm home on a Friday night simply because I didn't want to eat something or I didn't have the energy to go somewhere. And so it was it was kind of that repeated um, behavior. It wasn't kind of a, oh no, an overnight thing. And I did try to to get some help on a few occasions because I knew that I was going to ask if you got some help. Yeah, I, I knew that there was something wrong. And I knew that I needed to get out of it, but I didn't know how. So I booked a few appointments with our school therapist. And every time I would get scared the night before or the day before, and I would cancel my appointments. And I did that. Oh, no. Yeah. And I did that about, I mean, six to seven times. Um, and I would book an appointment. Like every time I would hit a really, really low point, I would be like, okay, now's the time. I would book an appointment. I would be like, okay, I'm going to do it this time. And then I would bow out the day before. I would get scared. I think that the biggest fear was like, I was scared that it was going to be labeled as something that if I went, then it really meant like there was something wrong with me. And I had that label. And that was really scary for me. Yeah, I can imagine because you might not want to admit that something's wrong with you where you kind of see that something's wrong with you. I can relate to that. So what did help you? Because professional help, you were trying, but it wasn't really working. So what did help you in the end? Mm -hmm. Funny, funny story. So I, um, it was in the year that I was, I was really at a low point. And I knew that I needed to snap myself out of it. I knew that I needed something in my life to kind of be drastically different in order to break that pattern that I was in. So I decided to apply to go work abroad in Italy and to be a nanny in Italy. I thought, okay, you know what? Leaving the country and, and really doing something completely out of my comfort zone I think that I need this right now. So I did it. And, and I did it when I was in a really low point in my life. And I eventually got accepted. I got the job. And I almost didn't go. Why? I had this fear of even though I knew I needed to do it, I had this fear of I'm going to go to Italy and people are going to make my food and I'm going to eat bread and pasta and cheese and wine and I'm gonna gain weight and that was a huge fear oh wow mm -hmm. so in the end did you go I did so everyone knew me at that time as the healthy freak and I, I got a lot of comments of you're gonna go to Italy you don't even eat cards you don't even eat bread like how how are you gonna survive there And I would kind of try to push that voice down and say, it's okay, I need this. Like, I, I need to do this, even though I'm terrified, I'm uncomfortable. I know it's going to be something that I need to do. So it wasn't like this decision that was super easy to make. But I knew there was a reason why I applied to do this when I was at my lowest. And I needed to do it. So I went anyways. And it was really that trip, I would say that that changed the whole mindset for me. 
it must have been such a hard decision to just push yourself into a very uncomfortable position going there all by yourself mm-hmm. and because you you kind of know what you're getting yourself into by knowing you're going into the unknown food wise so how did you dealt with that why while you were there all by yourself eating all these unfamiliar things how did you do that a lot of discomfort <laughs> and the more that you know now i i'm a health coach and i help women do the same thing and the more that i i work on myself i I'm, i'm noticing that any kind of growth comes from a place of discomfort and of fear and and just because it's uncomfortable it doesn't mean you have to do it and a lot of the time you don't have to do it and a lot of times discomfort means you should push yourself through it so i remember it was so funny The second I got to Italy, I had just been like on 24 hours of traveling and I got to my host family, the the family I was going to live with. And the first thing they said to me was, "Oh my god, you're so tiny." <laughs> um and it was so funny because I never thought of myself as being like this super small, but they said, "Oh my god, you're so tiny. Don't worry. We'll feed you well." Um and and that was I I heard that and I was like, "Oh my god, this is already going to be really hard." and progressively i i decided you know what people here they don't use the word diet in italy they don't talk about calories they don't have these conversations about weight like we do here you know and and now that i'm out of that mentality it's so crazy you know how much you notice that every conversation with women is about food and weight and oh my god i ate this yesterday so i have to go to the gym today there's none of that in italy and people don't worry about portion sizes or weighing their food or counting their calories so i thought okay you know what this is one of those the healthiest population in the world they're known for people there aren't morbidly obese or well, on a general basis um people there are really happy and they're really healthy so i thought they must be doing something right so let me try to absorb that culture and learn as much as i can from then and try it out for myself and seeing how that goes well that's a very very brave thing to do all by yourself if you're having such a struggle with eating I, i find that very very brave so after you came back from italy were you able to apply it back in canada what you've learned yeah so that summer living in italy was the summer that i felt the healthiest and the happiest and i was eating more than i ever have i mean it was all bets were off there was the pizza and the pasta and the gelato like there was There was no kind of restriction and it was like I said I was healthier than when I was counting my calories. So it was and the 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 way of life there is just different. It's slower and it's more relaxed. And so there's definitely there was that kind of reverse culture shock when I came back, you know? I came back to Canada where you drive everywhere and your your produce isn't as fresh and There was that reverse culture shock at the beginning, but because I was living on my own, I was able to make decisions that felt good for me. So I was able to buy fresh fruits and vegetables from 
the farmer's market instead of the grocery store just because I, I liked it better now. It wasn't because of diet culture. I liked it better. And I was able to make foods that felt good for me. And it was, I finally stopped tuning into all of these messages about what I should be eating or shouldn't be eating. And I just tuned in on what felt good for me and what I wanted to do for my own health and my own happiness. I think that's so incredibly brave and awesome that you did this all by yourself. I think that's that's awesome. Yeah, so a little bit forward, you went to Paris also. You lived in France, right? Yeah. Did you experience the same culture food-wise in France? I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, just to backtrack when you were saying, you know, it was brave that I, I did this on my own. I wouldn't say so much that it was bravery. It was needed um, because I couldn't have kept going on the way that I was living and I don't think I I I think that had I if I had to do it again I would have gone help when I er, earlier on and I think that everyone who who can relate to this and who struggles with this should not try to do this on their own um it it, no. it can be very isolating and I work with women who have struggled with this for five, 10, 20 years trying to do this on their own before finally deciding like, I cannot, I cannot figure this out on my own. Um, so I, I think that that's important is like, no one should do this on their own. And I was lucky that I got to Italy, go to Italy and see this different culture. And I don't even know had I not done that, if I would have been able to to get out of that yeah what I meant that I find it very brave of you is that I would recommend getting help at like overdoing it yourself mm -hmm. as well but the way you just described it and the courage you showed and you succeeded with that is is just like it's very brave to me but thank you definitely if you can get help for it just please do mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. yes um, so yeah so I came back to um, Canada and that's when I started changing my career path and I was like I was studying financial mathematics at the time and I decided that's not for me I want to help people because no one should should live that way no one should everyone should know that there's a different way to live a healthy lifestyle without making yourself miserable so that's when I I kind of got my eyesight on becoming a health coach and helping people do the same And then once I graduated from university, I, like you said, I moved to France um, because I wanted to have some time um, to kind of travel and, and have a, a social life and, and do fun things and get it out of my system before really starting my own health coaching business. And exactly the same as you said, I know that you're from the Netherlands, so um, yes. In, in Europe, I would say there is a very different food culture than in North America. And I did exactly have the same experience. It's funny, when I was in France, I read a book that was called Why French Women Don't Get Fat. <laughs> And it, it talked about the different culture about just eating in a way that makes you feel good. Um, eating small portions and, and just eating the foods that you love. And when you are eating, really enjoying the heck out of it instead of 
eating because it's low calorie or because you feel like you should be eating that. So I definitely, it kind of reaffirmed what I was doing, which France also a super healthy country and they eat the bread, the baguette and the, and the cheese and the wine, same thing. And so it reaffirmed that what I was doing was really right. And it felt right for me. Oh, that's, that's awesome. It's good to, it's good to hear differences like between North America and Europe and, and how you experience the food culture in different like areas of the world. So when I talk to a lot of like these former elite athletes, they also talk about a lot about identity crisis, like who they are without the sport. Did you experience that yourself? Definitely. Um, and I think that's why I dove so hard into trying to be healthy because I had this identity as an athlete and then you're out of the sport and it's like, okay, what am I working towards? Who am I? And so because I had always been an athlete, I decided, okay, well, I'm now I'm going to be the health nut. I'm going to be that person that only eats the salads and, and works out all the time. And that's going to be my new identity. Because I think that your brain tries to latch on to something new. And for me, it was being a health nut. For other athletes, it might be something like a career or whatever it is. But your brain likes to have this, this identity of who it believes it it is. And so I think that's another reason why my disordered eating got so amplified because it became part of who I was as well. And um, after you, because you mentioned previously when, when we spoke that you had to like rush out of France because of the pandemic back to Canada. And when you have to rush like that quickly to the place you came from uh, because of something you couldn't control, how was that like for you? stressful yeah. very stressful yeah so the pandemic hit while I was in France and it hit pretty badly while I was in France and so there was a lot of stress living in a foreign country not knowing what was going to happen if the pandemic was going to get better or worse and then it got to a point where they were about to close the border between like the borders between Canada and Europe and I decided okay I've I've got to go home. Even I'm going to cut my trip short. I just need to be with my family. I need to be in a safe, a safe space. So I did rush, packed up my stuff within a couple of days and was back in Montreal within a couple of days. And the first, the first few weeks were really hard. I think a lot of people at the beginning of the pandemic felt like so many things were uncertain, were out of their control. I was really upset because I had these plans for the year that had been ruined, that had been stopped short. Um, and I could have gone in this one direction, which was screw the world, everything sucks, everything is negative. And instead, I took that opportunity and decided, I'm going to make the most of this. How often do we get a second to pause from life? and not have these distractions and not have these responsibilities, never, literally never. No, so <laughs> it's, it's in those moments of silence and of stillness that a lot of magic can come from. And so I decided to use that stillness to kind of work on who am I? What is my real identity? What is this all about? What am I working towards? What do I want to do? Who do I want to help? And what do I want to be proud of, you know, five, 10 years from now, instead of 
what I had material things. Instead, I wanted to focus on what I've done. And so I did really take the last year and a half to get super clear on who I am. And I cannot be more thankful because now there's no question there. So what helped you throughout those one and a half years to refine yourself, basically? A lot of self-teaching. So I would listen to a lot of podcasts. I mean, I was listening to hours and hours of podcasts every single day, which is why I'm excited to be on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening to a lot of podcasts. I would watch a lot of documentaries and I did a lot of journaling and meditating and going on walks and just spending time with myself because it's so easy to get influenced by other people's opinions and thoughts and perspectives. And I just spent time with myself, listened to myself, my thoughts and 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 wrote it down. And that was really helpful for me. I think a lot of people find it very awkward to spend time with themselves, with their own thoughts. So I think that's a nice bridge towards the last question I always ask on the podcast. What advice would you give your younger self right now? And you can choose the age, you can choose multiple ages. What would you say to the to the younger you? Pause and reflect. Don't get so lost in the social events and the distractions and the responsibilities. Yes, those are important, but if you don't take a second to be mindful and aware of what's going on in your own life, of why you're making certain decisions, of how you feel about certain decisions, if you're trying to please other people or you're doing it because it really feels good for you, then you get lost in this autopilot and this kind of repetitive pattern that is not even a a result of your doing is just it's unintentional and you're just doing it because it happens automatically without you deciding to create the life that you actually want to live wow that's some awesome advice (laughs) yeah thank you so much for like being a guest on my podcast I really enjoyed listening to your story no thank you thank you so so much it's not something that I talked about for a really long time, but the more that, especially when it comes to your struggles, the more you talk about it, the less power you give to those stories and the less weight it has on you. And then it it feels really good to just let people know if you're struggling with something too, holding it in will only make it feel heavier and will only make it feel harder. Yeah, that's the whole reason I started this podcast, to hopefully be relatable with all those stories to other uh, former elite athletes and hopefully help others. So thank you again for wanting to share your story and, and being on my podcast. My absolute pleasure. It was really, really fun. Thank you. Sabrina talked about her health coaching business during the podcast. For more information, you can visit her website, sabrinamagnon.com, or her social media, sabrina.magnon.health. This podcast was created, hosted, edited, and produced by Annelette Bakker, and the music is We Are Free by Ixen. <laughs>